0: Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on the website, womensdeclaration.com where you'll find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which has been signed by 37,302 people from 160 countries and is supported by 518 organisations. We have many volunteer activists, including country contacts from every continent, engaged in defending women's rights. Do join us. You can become a member of WDI or volunteer or donate or all of those things. And you can get in touch via the website, womensdeclaration.com or info at womensdeclaration.com. Today, I'm really pleased to say we have Helen Joyce from the UK and Ireland. Her talk is going to be Trans, Feedback, Kickback and the Future. So that will be sort of related to the book and what she's doing now. Then we're going to hear from Luba Fine from Israel. And her talk is A Woman's Right to Her Body. Is it relevant to the sex industry discussion? So we're going to go now to our first speaker. Helen Joyce is a journalist, author and campaigner for Clarity About Sex in Life and Law. What were the reactions and what was the reception to
1: the book Trans? In some ways, an awful lot better than I thought it would be. It was um, it was a book that I spent a long time trying to decide whether I really would write it because I didn't expect that I'd find it easy to find a publisher, and and indeed, so it proved. But you know, one is enough. And the publisher I got, I couldn't have I couldn't have asked for better. They were just fantastic about it, and my editor was brilliant, and it was actually very smooth. And then it got great reviews. So I've only had a couple of negative reviews, and they're from people I don't think very highly of. So. You know, I did get reviews in really all the nearly all the mainstream um, British papers. Of course, I am still never mentioned in my home country. Uh, I, there's an absolute taboo on my name in in Ireland in Irish media. It's extraordinary. So the reaction was a lot better than I thought. But I suppose one person's reaction um, is worth talking about specifically, and that's my own. Like the reason I wrote this book was to get it out of my system. I really felt like I was being driven mad. It wasn't something that I was working in. I wasn't working for a feminist organisation, though I would also said I was a feminist. I was I was the finance editor of the Economist at the time that I was writing it, and then um, running our. Um, well, I I have a habit of the Economist, or I had a habit of the Economist, of moving jobs at precisely the wrong time. I took a job as the um, executive editor for events which I agreed to start in March 2020. And it was meant to be about traveling around the world, running large events and sharing them and <laughs> geo them. I know. I, d- I agreed yeah. to do that job in about, um, oh God, I think early 2020. And of course, when I actually came back to it, I had had two months off to write my book proposal straight before it. When I came back, I came straight into helping that team to move to um, Zoom. And, you know, I was stuck in Ireland looking after my parents and I wrote most of the book there. But so I thought that... I had stumbled upon something insane. I didn't know any of the backdrop to it. I did, I'd never heard of Janice Raymond. I'd never heard of Sheila Jeffries. I'd never heard of Judith Butler. I'm not saying those three people are of equal weight or <laughs> eminence in my mind. Just three people I had never heard of. And I'd stumbled on this thing and it was driving me completely potty. It was stopping me from sleeping. And so I thought, OK, the only way that I can deal with this is to write through it, write it all down, and then I will move on. And that's the bit that didn't happen. That's the bit that's been impossible. And I also don't want to, you know, I feel like I found what I'm meant to be doing and I'm getting up every day and doing the right thing. So I may as well just keep going. And so people still want to talk about it. My publisher tells me that it is a book with a long tail, like it sold well. It sold well enough to get me into the top 10 the week that it came out. And I think it was in the top 10 a few weeks after that, you know, they, they tend to go in and out a bit in the UK sales, but I mean, it's still selling. Um, mm. and you know my royalty check's still decent even though the book sells obviously for an awful lot less once it goes into paperback so you get lower royalties and people are still in touch with me all the time and people keep still asking me to come on podcasts and so it's been quite slow burn so yeah I think that's a decent enough summary of what the reaction has been.
0: You you were saying that you sort of it was surprising for yourself it was there anything that you were really surprised about while you were doing it did you keep did you come across things and think oh, no, that's even worse than I thought. Or can you tell us about anything that's... Yeah,
1: constantly, and I still am. It happens nearly every day that I have that feeling, I'm sure we all do, where you boggle. Yeah, And you think, no, 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 this cannot be. They cannot be saying that women in prison are kind and won't mind men being put in with them. I mean, five years in the trenches and of course more for Sheila Jeffries or Janice Raymond and I'm sure we're all or or, you know Suzanne Moore or Julie Bindel or all these people who noticed earlier than me they must still be being astonished I remember that the moment that I thought I hope I can say rude words on this the moment that I thought holy fuck was the moment when I really 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 realized that they meant it that men could be lesbians yeah like I, I was um so The Economist, there's a very strong weekly rhythm because it's a weekly publication and Wednesday is the busiest day, especially for section editors, which I was as the finance editor. And I remember distinctly going into work that day. You go in very early, you work a very long day. Then you come in and you work very, very long early from like 6 a.m. or so on Thursday. And then the paper goes to press at 12. But I came in early on the Wednesday and just before the craziness of the day got going, I went across to a friend, uh, you know, good guy who understands all this stuff and thought it was as mad as I did, but a finance writer. And I've been going and telling him mad things. And I went into him and said, you're not going to believe it. They really, really think men can be lesbians. They think that you're a bigot if you're a lesbian and you won't sleep with a man. And I mean, he's a heterosexual man married with kids. You know, the two of us looked at each other and went, no. I'm like, they do, they do. I thought it couldn't be real either, you know.
0: (laughs) One of the ways I see it is that they're prepared to give up. Science and maths, you being a mathematician, math, math, you know, academic mathematician before doing all this, they're prepared to give up all of that, both science rationality, at, in order to do this, in order to get men into women's spaces. That's my very cynical reading of it. So I think it is it is like in 1984 where Big Brother said, the party won't need science anymore. We don't, you know, and, we and don't the, need so, it. The other
1: thing that, um, that has really amazed me and still ongoingly amazes me is that this is an idea that's more popular with women than with men. Mm. Like the fact is, if you do opinion polls, if you talk to people, the cheerleaders for this are young women, and they are the people who are most damaged by it. And I have theories about it, and I think that, you know, we can say women are socialized to be kind and so on but i think too much of those theories too many of them rest on the idea that women are great and men are shit and like there's no doubt but that the the beating heart or the nuclear power source at the move at the center of this movement is absolutely men and their boners no doubt about that whatsoever but the foot soldiers are, are young women and i i you know there's something very dark about women's psyches that they are so keen on policing other women on propping up men's desires on simping for the you know for the the men who run the country and i mean maybe we shouldn't be so surprised it's a it's a it's a stable um it's a stable strategy in the world we live in to suck up to men
0: in terms of cancellation did you get cancelled at all
1: um, so I will say that my my employer was supportive in exactly the right way. I don't want my employer cheerleading from it for me, especially an employer that um, you know it has a very strong line. Yes, I mean the Economist is just for open markets. It's you know a certain view of the world, a nineteenth century liberal view. So I mean you know there's a strong editorial line. But it's a place where that taken into account has a great multiplicity of views. I don't want them going out and cheerleading for me, and I don't want them silencing people who disagree with me. (laughs) So I think they did that exactly right. All they did was just refuse to sanction me in any way. Um, I wasn't able to keep writing about it, but that's not because I was being sanctioned. It's because it's a paper that has no bylines. And it's a standard rule that we don't get people who are strongly associated with one side of an argument to write on that topic. So, if you, you know, if you were somebody who was a, a vociferous member of an environmental party, you wouldn't be the environment correspondent. Mm. So I just think that's moral. So, yeah, as soon as I became the story at all, I was not able to write on the subject anymore. So but by then you see The Economist, by being such a great place to work, other people had taken it up. So it's continued to cover the topic very well. And so everything that was in the paper from 2018 wasn't written by me. Yeah, there might have been one piece I can't remember um, past that but uh, it just basically the coverage was not by me um cancellation is such a you know it's such an ill-defined word and people tried to get me fired but um the 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 funniest attempt I don't know how many people like you know we're all terminally online in this you know we all know you know who relationship and purposes Robin is or you know when Sally Hines uh, tweets you know these are our in jokes but um one of them was this bloke called Anthony Watson, who tried to get himself invited to an economist conference on pride issues in the workplace and uh, tweeted at me really relentlessly for about 48 hours. And the thing was, he was a, a an, an, an advisor to Dawn Butler, who at the time was Labour's LGBT spokesperson and it really said some very stupid things. Anyway, he tweeted at me and I immediately got a message from the head honcho at The Economist saying, I know what's going on. It's fine. Ignore. Well, I don't think she said ignore, and I certainly didn't ignore. So I just had a lot of fun saying, um, I'm not running this conference. It's in Hong Kong. Anthony, are you not able to read? And so on. So, you know, but in a different workplace, I'd have lost my job the next day. Yeah. So so people tried. People tried. People complained about me to my employer several times. Um, People internally complained. I'm pretty sure. I don't know that for sure, but I think so. They've every right to do that.
0: A recent podcast you did, you said that you gave up it was a big thing to do. You had to think about yeah. it to, a lot because you gave up one of the f- last few remaining good jobs, decent jobs in journalism when you gave up being the finance editor at The Economist. and Can you tell us about what made you make that decision? Because it, it, it's a massively, it was a fantastic job. And there, as you say, there aren't many available. Yeah. So what what pushed you to do it?
1: So by the time I left, I wasn't finance editor anymore. I switched from being finance editor to doing that events job. And then I became Britain editor. So I think I'd been Britain editor for about a year. Um, I was, had I become Britain editor when my book came out? I think I might just bit, just about, yeah, I think that's right. I think I'd started that job then. But people move every you know, fairly frequently at The Economist. So that wasn't strange. Um and I really thought, I still thought at that point, yes, I did. I took that job before the book came out. And I really thought, like, you know, I've got the book out, I've got that off my chest, and now <laughs> I can focus on this. And, you know, I did. I th- obviously I threw myself into the job. But um, for a start, people kept wanting comment. But also the madness just continued. I mean, we, you know, I'm sure everyone else feels the same, but this is going faster and faster. I'm getting dizzy every day. The speed, like the speed of the insanity, but also because we are fighting back well in the UK. And the speed of the response, like it's really every day that there's something happening legislatively, and sometimes it's good things. And the number of consultations we have to respond to, like I'm just dizzy. So that became clear. And um, there's a concept that I discovered, and I I feel a little hesitant saying it because it sounds like I'm appropriating something that's really big for something quite small. And that concept is um, how how was it explained to me? Um, It's like it's a moral injury. That's it. So the woman who was telling me about this is a woman who works in a women's centre. She runs it, in fact, and they're becoming very hard to run. I mean, they've always been hard to run. But the specific thing at the moment is just that, um, you know, the funding is so difficult and she she was so reliant on contracts from probation that she just basically can never do the job that she's meant to do. And probation in the UK was the thing that was squeezed the most under um, austerity. So probation officers can't do their job either. So then they go sick. So then there's more burden on the ones that are left. And she said to me, do you know the concept of a moral injury? It's when you know what you should be doing, but you cannot do it and it makes you sick. And so I hesitate to draw from that like really horrific situation where you've got vulnerable women, you're trying to run a women's centre, you've got people in probation, you know. But the fact is I was experiencing a moral injury, which was not imposed on me by The Economist, to be clear. It was that I knew what I should be doing and I couldn't do it. Because when you have a job somewhere, you have to limit what you say to some extent, at least. And obviously, this is just the time element. I was doing a big job. I mean, it's a sixty-plus hour a week job, no question, probably more. And so I was, I was feeling sick. Um, I had a sore stomach the whole time. Um, I became more and more, um, really thinking every day I can't cope with this anymore. Um, but I was afraid because you know I'm the primary breadwinner. I have a mortgage. I have two kids. Um. You know, just, I, I, you, you leave something like that, you never get back into it. You just have to accept that. It's not like if I did this 30 or 40 years ago, I could hope to come back into journalism at a similar level that I had left or a bit lower. That's it. I'll never be offered a full time job in journalism again because nobody offers them. I only had one because I had it since 2005.
0: Do you feel like you made the right choice?
1: <laughs> oh my God, it was just wonderful. My stomach hasn't hurt since. Oh wow! So I rang, yeah, I rang Maya, who had um, by this time Maya was the only person I think who was being paid by Sex Matters, and she was you know, not being paid what she's worth by any means because Sex Matters was new. Um, maybe she had a little bit of admin help, I can't remember, but was very early on. And I said to her, "Is there any chance that I can work for you part time? Because I needed to have some core income." And then I thought, you know, I'll, I'll do a Substack. It's actually not run on Substack, but I still call it a Substack. I'll do some freelance journalism. And I'll take that leap of faith for the rest. And um, she spent a weekend scrabbling around trying to do a bit of fundraising to see if she couldn't say it was me. She just had to say, look, we've got a chance to have a hire that might be really important for us. And she got some money. And again, then they made a leap of faith. And then I came on a few days a week for Sex Matters. So Maya is still the only person who's full time at Sex Matters. And we've got about five other people who are between 0.1 and me, 0.6. Actually, somebody else's 0.8 uh, time. But that was the core And after that, you know, I mean, I'm an atheist. I just live once every day that goes by. And also on this topic in particular, there's an incredible sense of urgency because every person who gets caught up in the ideology that we're opposing is somebody who is fighting against our rights. Like it's somebody who is seeking to overturn the long-standing principles that men stay out of women's spaces, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and also every child, like every child who gets caught up in this, even if they don't end up being permanently medicalized, they they miss a really crucial part of their youth, and you can't get that back. Like you can never get time back, but your teen your teenage years, you know, to not get them back, that's when you grow up. So, so every day there's more irreversible harm or damage, as Abigail Schreier said, and. Every day it becomes more embedded and it'll be harder to get back out. So, you know, it's now or never. I must say, I did originally think that I would just take a year's leave of absence and the Economist agreed to that. They gave me a year's leave of absence. You know, again, wishful thinking. I thought I could maybe make a big difference in a year and come back having got, you know, again, hoping I'd scratch the itch or got it off my chest or whatever it was. But I now think I'll be doing this certainly until retirement age and possibly for the rest of my life. You know, yeah. I had no idea how deep it had got.
0: Is there an audio version of your book?
1: Yes, there is. Um, It it didn't come out at the same time as my book, and my publisher tried to walk it around. The way it works is you tend to sell the audio rights, and there are 10 companies in the UK that record audio books, and not one of them bought it, even though it was by now had been in the top 10. So um, because they knew they'd get grief, you know, grief, it's not worth it to them. Like I would have had to be J.K. Rowling or somebody to to get an Mm audio book. Uh, so I ended up recording it at home. Um, my son, who is now a sound engineer, was still at university studying um, music tech and he recorded it in the understairs cupboard for me. And um, we did it. Um, you know, he he did his first. He, he hated it. He only likes music. He doesn't like uh, spoken word. He actually recorded Louise Perry's book for her as well. And um, she actually did get a deal, but he gave her a better deal. And he said he's never doing it again. He kept telling me how good her book was. I mean, it was actually very odd reading, you know, and then they remove the inner parts of the penis and use the skin that remains. And my son is sitting outside this cupboard with a cable under the door, you know. We we literally hung um, duvets around the plate. The understairs cupboard is where the washing machine is. And I propped my laptop on top of the washing machine and we hung duvets around it for sound reasons.
0: Have you changed your mind about anything? Do you think there's anything changing that went into the book that you're... You need to do another book to sort of talk about. I'm not doing another book on this. I I feel
1: (laughs) I feel I got about ninety five percent where I wanted. Which you know I did get to write it all down. Um, you know I'm 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 in. I was in the right place in journalism at the Economist because although I love news and I like the human interest stories, it's always the ideas that interest me. So so of course there's been a million stories since, but the ideas are the same. I mean, there's this one big idea that you can screw up these two fundamental categories and then you watch it ripple out. Um, my editor helped me a lot in structuring it. And I think, think the structure stood up very well. Um, I The one thing that people do ask me about is pronouns. And uh, I would have written the book with no preferred pronouns if I did it now. But, um, you know, I just want to say a bit about that, which is i also coach writing i, I coach writing for executives and, and civil servants and the like and one of the things i say to them at the start is when you're writing you have to be clear about your purpose your audience and your message and when you think about your audience what that means is where are they you can't talk to people assuming that they understand what you think assuming that you're right you know that's that's the height of arrogance You have and, and people understand that when they're thinking about say science that your audience might be scientifically unsophisticated or very sophisticated But if my audience is not going to listen to me, if I call a man a man every time, then it's on me to work out what to do. It's not on them. I can't just say, well, they shouldn't be like that. So it's my job to get my message across to people wherever they are. And people have maybe moved a fair bit, actually, since I started writing the book on this. And I find it more and more. I actually can't bear it myself. Like I find I find a moral injury every time, in fact, that I call a man a woman. So I, there was a, a there was one segment where I worked very hard to remove pronouns altogether. And that was a bit about Jessica Eve. I would have done more of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: That's the one thing I think I'd change.
0: I think that's probably the most helpful way for us to progress is to if we disagree, is to disagree, try to educate each other, work out what's the best way of communicating and moving forward with this. So, yeah, well, that's... And also
1: different audiences. You know, I'm in various chats with people that I know completely agree with me on, you know, men are men and women are women. So there I talk about men as men and women are women. But if I were to be invited onto something else, or if I were trying to persuade a bunch of teenagers who've drunk the Kool-Aid, I'd start with where they are and work out what I want them to understand. And that's just standard good writing practice. I think um, every every domain has its own professional uh, norms, but also it's, it's guiding principles. And in journalism, it's don't mislead your audience. So so that's why I do not say trans woman. I mean, Julia Long, I mean, she's right about many, many things, but she's very specifically right on that. Nobody can remember, not even one of us. And we've been in this for years can remember what the hell that is. Is it a man who thinks he's a woman or a woman who thinks he's a man? And you get tripped up. I still get tripped up. So if you can possibly in those spaces, you just talk about, you know, men who identify as women or men who claim to be women or Tim's or whatever it was you want to use. But in another space, you've got to do the extra cognitive work because you don't want to mislead your audience, but you also want to get your message across.
0: Radical feminists tend to be gender abolitionists, and we want to get rid of gender, which we see as a means of oppressing women and girls. Um, And so we sort of see it as the the method by which women are oppressed, or one of the methods, so gender yeah, one, itself, yeah. the sexual stereotypes, the forcing of women into those boxes. And so we just say, let's just get rid of gender. And so an example would be, I uh, haven't got any makeup on and I haven't got female hair. um, And I'm not dressing in the box that men would, the patriarchy wants to put me into. So that would be rejecting, that's abolishing gender to some extent or to, you know, in quite a large extent, actually. do you do you know or can you shed light on
1: what gender critical is so gender critical beliefs are protected you know is now a is now a legal fact in the uk um but it's like saying christianity like what does christianity mean like i I was actually just writing about this myself yesterday um so, to say that a belief is protected in UK law, uh, this is relevant. This is not me trying to dodge the question, but it's not the answer is not really going to be about gender. Um, it has to pass the five Granger criteria, which is a test that's set out in a precedent setting court case. And the fifth one is the relevant one. It's the one that says, is it worthy of respect in a democratic society or does it inherently trample on other people's rights? So, incredibly, in her first tribunal, Maya's um, judgment said that believing that there are two sexes, those sexes can't change, and that that matters sometimes was a belief that was so hateful. That it trampled on other people's rights and was not worthy of respect in a democratic society. Anyway, you can't just say a belief is in that category or not. You have to know what the person believes, um, and that be true for Christianity. Like if by Christianity you meant uh, stone witches, to, you know stone adul- adulteresses, burn witches, uh, you know whatever it is they do to gay people. I'm not sure in the in the Old Testament. Then obviously that's not worthy of respect in a democratic society. But another person's Christian belief, like mainstream Christian beliefs, are. So I guess GC is a you know you know the way it's used is that it's a placeholder word for any sort of belief that um, you know not just that there are two sexes and that the sexes can't change, but that you must pay attention to that fact on occasion and specifically you must pay attention to that fact for women's sake. So why that's got called gender critical is a bloody good question. I mean, I tend to call it sex realist now. And then, of course, because they love twisting your words, they say that I'm trying deliberately to get the echo of race realist, which is the way that people launder racist theories about different racial groups. But I'm just all I'm saying is there are two sexes. And if you don't pay attention to that, you harm women because of the male default, because of male strength, because specifically it's women who need accommodation because we have the children. And you know that's a, that's an enormous burden on women that requires societal accommodation because of rape, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think it's anything to do with gender, in fact, gender critical. Like, I think it's just a placeholder phrase that ended up for some reason being the one that's used. It's not a good phrase for it. Um, And I mean, you know, this this sort of rock bottom thing, I suppose it would be possible. We were trying to unpick this recently in a conversation I was having. Like, it's quite annoying that sex is real and immutable is part of a belief because it's not a belief. It's a fact. But the thing is, facts aren't protected under UK discrimination, anti-discrimination law, only beliefs. But actually, it's possible that you could believe that there are two sexes and that they're immutable or know that to be a fact, but think it's totally unimportant. And that women who are saying, I need to be able to foreground this, sometimes I need to be able to say that person's a man, not a woman, or vice versa. I mean, mostly the man, not a woman, Uh, that they're just being bigots. Like so, so I think quite a lot of our critics, they won't have articulated it that way, but that's the position they're in. They know perfectly well there's two sexes. They know which sex their mother is. They know that trans women aren't women, but they think it's very mean to say it because it doesn't matter that there are two sexes. So the bedrock belief, I think, the one that we have to you know defend at all costs and the belief that sex matters is specifically about is two sexes, immutable, and that matters especially for women and we might say I now, and safeguarding. Maybe. Not just us, but, you know, people who care about free speech, people who care about pluralism, and um, actually religious people who, you know, have very strong feelings, as I do, sort of as a hangover from my Catholic childhood, of the sort of sacredness of childhood. Like, I, you know, I, I have a moral, ethical you know, disgust when I see the way that they talk about children as if they're plug and play things that you can move bits of their bodies. And I know that the emotion I'm feeling is one that comes from a feeling of sacredness and awe, even though I am atheist. So any religious person who wants to join with me on that ground is very, very welcome to. So it's a very broad church set of beliefs. It was a great, um, a short um summation of it all by lucy hunter blackburn on twitter today i saw she said it's very interesting that you look around the world and you see it's the same three legislative elements that they go for first is gender self-id which is what they want then the other two are a conversion therapy ban and um what's the other one hate speech Uh, hate speech that's right so hate speech means that you can't talk about it and conversion therapy ban means when it actually comes up against you as in you you are going to be forced to do something like a parent literally forced to allow their daughter to bind their breasts, her breasts or whatever you'll have to do it, mm-hmm. and so now they've won if they get those three. And um, what are sex matters plans for 2024 if we're free to discuss them? Well, the school well of course they were likely to see a change of government at some point here. I'm not saying anything that's secret here so the current government we you know does have some awareness of how bad things have got of course it all happened under the conservatives this isn't me trying to make an anti-labour point but we have got people in government like kemi who understand the issues so whatever we can get before there's a change of government and the two most or well, the three most important things would be to stop any conversion therapy ban to get decent schools guidance on the actually published and um if possible to correct the equality act so that Gender reassignment is entirely separate from sex. Those will be the the very sort of focused things. But more generally, we think that uh, we need to be thinking a lot more, all of us, all of us in this movement, about safeguarding principles. Because once somebody starts to think about um, safeguarding in this uh, in, in this area, they realise like just how you have to go the whole way back, and it gives you a good tool. Um, other people are doing specific things on, say, sports and so on. But we t- we thought that schools were really um, essential because that's where the kids get indoctrinated and also because they're closed environments where nobody has a GRC and where safeguarding is meant to come first. Healthcare will be the next thing that people need to do more on. Already we're way behind on that. Diversity, equity and inclusion philosophy, again, this is another of those things. It's like it's this is a perfect storm, isn't it? Like you can look at it through that lens or you can look through this lens, you know. Uh, yeah. Um the sort of the sort of thinking of people as characteristics and the thinking of people as very self-defined seem to me to play an enormous part in all of this. Like young people take it as a given that you shouldn't speak about things unless you, too, are a Chinese, you know, bisexual uh, immigrant with a single parent or whatever your specific characteristics are. And I mean, this is so inimical to the liberal values that created science. Um. It just, it, you know, it, it throws away everything that got us everything that I actually value in a modern, um, you know, liberal economy. And then the idea that you define yourself also, like, you know, when I've seen people trying to who are willing to talk, the very occasional people who are willing to talk who very much disagree with the sorts of things I say, like they will always say, like, nobody can tell you who you are except yourself. And you're like, really? Like, I mean, loads of people can tell me that I'm middle aged and female and, bunch of other things you know um is there a fear that gender ideologues will also use the right to belief in law to win cases well the um the right to belief in law is very very specific uh to the beliefs so if someone wants to say that they believe that men can be women i I mean think of all the mad things that people believe and that you can't fire them because they believe it. that's completely fine if someone wants to believe that men can be women and they don't do anything about it at work and they don't cause trouble in the pub then fine But if somebody believes that men can be women, and that means that men have to be allowed to do things that directly or indirectly impact upon women's rights, then that's the argument that you'd be having about worthy of respect in a democratic society. So a man who thinks that he can do, for example, um, intimate exams on a woman as a doctor... When that woman has said she wants to be seen by a female doctor that's a man who's committing sexual assault and, that, and his belief is then not worthy of respect in a democratic society and if he were to be sacked for doing that he should not have protection under uk employment law that's the way the argument would go hate speech um conversion therapy and just gender self-id in the first place like that's the basis of it get the gender self-id and make it impossible to talk about make it impossible to stop anyone from doing what they want when am i standing for parliament i would rather die um, I have no patience. They spend their time doing... It's great work. Someone has to do it, but I couldn't bear it.
0: So we're now going to hear from Luba Fine, who is a feminist activist and sex trade survivor and abolitionist. She's a volunteer at the feminist organisation Filia and is going to talk about a woman's rights to her body. Is it relevant to the sex industry discussion? So um, welcome, Luba,
2: and uh, over to you. At the end of my previous speech about the Nordic model, uh, about... uh... Three months ago, a a woman from the U.S. asked me a question. She wanted to know how to deal with the following argument. Uh, Why does a woman have the right to her body to have an abortion, but not to be in prostitution or surrogacy? This was uh, the question and the argument. So why do we respect the woman's choice in one situation and in the other? We do not. I have uh, encountered this argument several times. So why indeed? What is the difference? And uh, the answer is that uh, there are three big problems with the whole discourse and with the choice arguments, both in general and in particular when applied to the sex industry. So let's start. My first problem with the concept of free choice is uh, that uh, the entire discourse suits the academy better than reality, because uh, what is a choice anyway? Are we choosing something when the alternative is physical harm to us or our families? This is a prevalent situation in prostitution. Or are we choosing something when we have no idea about the consequences? This is an even more common situation in prostitution. It is impossible to understand how prostitution affects a woman before she is actually there. And uh, when you are at the lowest point of your life, physically, mentally, and socially, and uh, you cannot make an active change that requires enormous resources, do you choose not to change? Because this is the situation of almost every woman in prostitution. Uh, So choice is a very vague concept. We do not have clear definitions for it. And people use it it way too often to abandon the needy and sleep peacefully. My second problem with the choice argument is uh, that our right to choose is never a sufficient condition to justify a social practice. The the choice is merely a minimum standard. A legitimate social practice must meet several other criteria. We do not allow debt bondage by choice. We do not allow payment of wages below the minimum. And uh, we do not allow domestic violence because the woman chose a violent husband. And uh, here is my third and the biggest problem with the choice argument. Even if if 100% of the women did not enter prostitution under coercion and threats, this is not the case, but let's assume so for the sake of discussion. We must still use additional criteria to test the legitimacy of the practice. And uh, when we talk about social practices as feminists, we must do a macro analysis. The whole discourse about individual choice is suitable for the, for the psychologist's coach that feminism is a sociological body of knowledge, not psychological and feminist analysis is always macro. So when we do a macro analysis of abortions, prostitution and surrogacy, we clearly see that, uh, that these are very difficult, different practices in essence. Abortions are a medical service that women need. The need for abortions comes from the women, although even in the field of medicine we have uh, (laughs) profit industries, such as the cosmetic surgery industry or or some other industries, abortions are nothing like that. I have never seen anywhere in the world a commercial advertisement that uh, convinces women to have an abortion with the benefits of an abortion and the excellent abortions experience precisely at this clinic. We don't have ads like this. Abortion is a women's need that women ha- have had to fight for throughout in the, the hi- history. They usually receive a partial solution to it and not everywhere. So when abortions are prohibited by law, they do not disappear. The women continue to undergo them and risk their life for them. But prostitution, is not a medical service. It's not a medical need. It is an industry. Of course, it's not a legitimate industry because it sells sexual exploitation. But even if you don't fully understand it, you cannot claim that it exists because women want it. Even if we pretend that, that prostitution is just work, the suggestion that the choices of prostituted individuals drive the industry is nonsensical. Businesses are driven by customer demand, whether authentic or artificial. No industry exists simply because uh, the workers or workers want it. Even even legitimate industries like uh, hotels or textiles, they don't exist because workers want it. It is the demand that creates jobs for them. The same goes for prostitution. And of course, I'm not trying to say that prostitution, uh, women and prostitution, enjoy conditions that remind those of uh, legitimate industries. I'm only explaining why industries in general exist. The sex trade is not the women's choice, but the Pimson johns' choice. Prostitution exists whether women choose it or not. The pimps will sell as many women as they can. Women choices are not a factor. For the same reason exactly, there is no point in uh, trying to eradicate prostitution by improving the social conditions in the country. I don't know if you came across a slogan that pimp lovers like very much, don't fight prostitution fight poverty. So don't fight them, fight poverty. But they try to imply imply that prostitution is simply the poor woman's way of getting rich. But what do you think would happen if all the women were rich in a particular country? Does anyone really believe that Pimps and Jones will simply say, eh, well, friends, the women don't want to be prostitutes. Let's close the business and go home. They won't say so. Their ways of getting women for their uh, business have nothing to do with women's desires. They threaten women, they lie to women, they manipulate, they traffic vulnerable women and girls from abroad, they extort women, they they exploit girls who lack family support. The methods are not lacking and the new methods uh, are created every moment. None of them is related to what the women really want. The same goes for surrogacy. It is an industry and the primary beneficiaries are surrogacy agencies and private clinics. The source of demand for that industry is people who do not want or cannot give birth to a child naturally. And the surrogates, they are not the ones who choose the industry to exist. About two years ago, I interviewed for a podcast uh, my dear friend from Ukraine, Uh, her name is Maria Dmitrieva, many of you know her. She told me that in the war-torn areas of eastern Ukraine, with collapsing infrastructure, you can uh, often see in public transport surrogacy agencies' ads. The ads invite women to to become surrogates. In, in countries with a legal sex industry, we can see big ads for brothels. Check who paid for these ads and you will find out who exactly moves the wheels of those industries, who choose prostitution to exist and who choose surrog- surrogacy to exist. And these are not the women. Thank you one uh, interesting question was uh, what was about ethical form and uh, another uh, comment in the chat uh, that I have uh, seen was uh, that uh, in, in the West uh, all uh, prostitutes are choosing it unless they are trafficked so they're choosing it unless they're not choosing it and uh, that's uh, why i'm uh, against the nordic model so i think we can uh, we can uh, like unite to uh, those two comments and uh, ask again what does it mean how do we know uh, what is uh, what is ethical porno ethical prostitution and what does it mean uh, uh, women are tra- uh, trafficked or not trafficked so if we, we are speaking about trafficking, if we use the definitions of Palermo Protocol, which uh, which I personally agree, so trafficking, uh, it includes all sorts of prostitution where uh, individuals were uh, uh, prostituted uh, by many, uh, many methods, as I said, and uh, one of them was exploiting uh, vulnerabilities. So I have been in the sex trade, and uh, after uh, more than 30 years, I am fighting against the sex trade after exiting it. I have never ever seen a single woman who was in prostitution and who wasn't vulnerable in some way. Uh, Women in prostitution are always, uh, they're always there because of sort of vulnerability, whether uh, they they were either born with that vulnerability or uh, vulnerability was created in prostitution, everyone is vulnerable. And now uh, we are talking about ethical porn and how we can separate between uh, by choice and trafficking. So uh, recently we have a uh, 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 organization, uh, prostitution research and education, uh, by, uh, uh, founded by Melissa Farley. She is here in this chat. Yes. Uh, so this uh, group uh, published a very important research among uh, women in pornography in Sweden. I, I was uh, among her uh, research assistants and I'm very proud of it. I put in the chat link to the research. Please, I, I, I beg you, please read this report if you ever asked uh, yourself about ethical porn. So w- w- what is actually, what is the criteria for porn to be ethical? Uh, like in, intuitively, I, I would say porn that, that, that didn't harm the people in it. If uh, a porn that harmed the women exploited or photographed in it cannot be ethical. So how do we know whether uh, women are harmed or not harmed? Intuitively, I do. You know any woman who would uh, who, uh, who, who would be not uh, harmed, injured, damaged by being presented in the way like in modern porn? Like we can say it. I I know no woman in that. But in our research, we actually uh, we actually researched a sample of women and we asked them what they experienced in porn and uh, how what were uh, the consequences of porn on them. And we found out that uh, most, uh, the vast majority of women were harmed in 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 a, in a very severe way. Please read about it. And moreover, most women uh, interviewed by us they did they they didn't agree to to be depict, photographed for porn, and uh, most women don't even know uh, when they were uh, photographed or videotaped over they weren't so even the most pathetic basic uh, criteria for consent consent doesn't exist in uh, in uh, modern poor in sweden western country where uh, as someone among the participants said, uh, women are by choice uh, unless they're trafficked. So you decide please whether women who do not know whether they were photographed or women who were not asked, not paid. Many women are uh, are photographed by pimps and johns without giving any consent. Ethical porn cannot exist. And uh, even if it existed like some magical creature, when uh, people watch the video, they cannot know anything about that woman. Is this woman woman, uh, suffering? Was it damaged? Maybe she committed suicide due to porn consequences. We we cannot know it. So ethical porn cannot exist as a general idea. And the same about uh, women being uh, in prostitution by choice. How do you know? How do you know uh, which woman in prostitution is by choice? There? Oh, uh, any research that uh, we examine now shows that women are desperately willing to exit prostitution, but uh, they have no resources, emotional, uh, physical, economic, uh, social support. They have no resources to do it.